0: Well, as a child, Christmas took forever to come. And waiting for Christmas was one of I know I know it wasn't really, but waiting for Christmas as a child was one of the greatest agonies and injustices that you could have, that it took so long for it to come. The longing, the waiting growing up in a military base, a slogan I remember hearing everywhere was hurry up and wait. And that seems to capture what it's like as a child for Christmas the hurrier you go, the weightier you become for Christmas. It just never comes. Now, as a, as a, as a kid, it never comes. As, as an adult, it comes too fast. It's Christmas Day already. It's here. Where did December go? And New Year is next week. I hope you've had a, a good Christmas morning already. Well, Christmas has always been a time of waiting. Advent has always been a time of longing and anticipation. And around the first Christmas day, that day when shepherds were keeping watch over their flock by night, that day when when a chorus of angels split the sky in Bethlehem with an announcement of a baby boy's birth, a boy they called the son of David, a boy they named as a savior who was the Lord's Messiah, a day when a brand new husband and wife. How young they were, how tired they were. How worn out Mary was when they beheld their son, God's son, wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. Around that first Christmas day, somebody was waiting too. But it wasn't a kid waiting for Christmas. It was a grown man. As I reflected this week, this man may be the only character in the first Christmas story who wasn't surprised about what was to happen. He'd been waiting for it for a long time. He'd been supernaturally told he wouldn't die until this happened. This was no surprise for him. Would you listen or, or read the first, this, this story with me this morning? Here's the story about a man waiting for Christmas. It's in Matthew, Mark, Luke, the third book of the, uh, the Christian New Testament. If you have a copy of the Bible, you can turn there to Luke, the Christian New Testament. If you don't, it's the passage we had on the screen here before us this morning. And then I'm going to, I'll read it here for us. So Luke chapter 2, here's the story about a man waiting for Christmas. The big numbers are the chapter numbers. The little numbers are the verse numbers. So we're in Luke 2 and verse 25. Here is the story of a man waiting for Christmas. Here is what Holy Scripture says. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout This child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that will be opposed. A sword will pierce through your own soul also, Mary, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed, understood by what they think of this child. This is the word of the Lord. So who was this man waiting for Christmas? His name was Simeon. Well, who was that? Nobody special. Now, Simeon was the famous name, the famous second son of Jacob in in the history of Israel. But the name was so famous that lots of little boys, lots of men were named Simeon in the first century. In fact, one of Jesus's own disciples is named Simon, an alternative Simeon, Simeon, Simon, Peter. Simon has a famous name, but it's a quite common and ordinary name. Now, some people think that Simeon, maybe he was a priest of some kind. After all, he appears here in the temple. But surely there were lots of boys, lots of men around the temple who were named Simeon as well. It's a common name. And if Simeon was a person of note, if Simeon had credentials, we would expect Luke, this doctor and careful historian to note those details as he does with Zechariah in chapter one. Or even with Anna, the prophet is to follow in verses 37, 36 and 37. So best we know from the historical accounts, Simeon is by all accounts an ordinary man, a lay person who loved God. It's good to remind ourselves on Christmas Day that it's just like the Lord to use ordinary people. An ordinary manger, ordinary shepherds, an ordinary couple, and now an ordinary man with a common name, Simeon. And today on Christmas Day, as with the first Christmas, Christ comes for boys and girls and for men and women too. We can say, have you made room for this Christ? Have you welcomed him like Simeon, this man who took the babe in his arms? Have you welcomed him? Is there room? Have you received this gift, the gift of Christ as your only hope? While we know nothing of Simeon's credentials, what we do know about him is most important. We don't know anything of his credentials, but we do know his character. Luke tells us that he is a righteous and devout man. Character is nearly always more important than somebody's credentials and accomplishments. That's why in the New Testament, when it lays out qualifications for church leaders like elders and deacons, it says nothing of personality tests and degrees or even personality types. All things with our modern HR department seem to obsess about. The Bible assesses about none of those things. Character is king. Thus we are told that Simeon is a devout man and a righteous man. What does that mean? Maybe I could put it like this. Simeon is The kind of man you could trust your your wife with. You could trust your kids to. If he had your bank account number, it would be safe. Simeon was a righteous man. He's also a devout man. He's not afraid of holiness, of pursuing God. We can say as a minor application that real men are righteous. Real men are devout. Are you that kind of man? Righteous and devout. So devout that Luke tells us the Holy Spirit was upon this man. Now, that kind of language, the Holy Spirit was upon him, is used in the first half of the Christian Bible and the Old Testament when prophets spoke as the Holy Spirit came upon them. Or in the Old Testament, when deliverers, when the Lord raised up deliverers, judges to deliver his people, the the Holy Spirit came upon them and then they acted and delivered his people. The Simeon is an ordinary man. A righteous and devout man who's now about to function like a prophet man. The Holy Spirit is upon him. And if we'd been reading Luke's account uh, from chapter one and verse one, we would know that Simeon is now the sixth person associated with the birth of Christ who's filled or influenced by the Holy Spirit. The sixth person. So this kind of dense concentration of references, supernatural references to the Holy Spirit surrounding the birth of Mary's boy tells us that something indeed supernatural, unheard of in history is about to happen. That eternity is stepping into time that can I say this in our in our secular, increasingly secular age, that God himself is at work in an extraordinary supernatural way in, at and through the birth of Christ. The Holy Spirit is at work. The authority of God presses in around people at Christmas time. It moves in around us. His authority, His way. This is no ordinary birth. The Holy Spirit was on everybody who had anything to do with announcing or delivering this child. Because God, in a sense, had ripped a hole into the canopy of the earth and He parachuted in. This baby is God with us. Though Simeon is a righteous and devout man, that doesn't mean that Simeon saw himself as a self-sufficient, self-made individual. Why is that? Because the end of verse 25 tells us that Simeon is waiting for something. Or better still, he's waiting for someone. Who is it? Verse 25, he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Jesus uses that word consolation elsewhere to describe the work of the spirit as a title for the Holy Spirit, where Jesus describes the work of the Holy Spirit as a comforter, as as a comfort. That's the word here. Simeon is looking for the comforter of Israel, for the consolation of Israel. And if we want to know who or what that consolation, that comforter was, then look at the next verse. What or who is the consolation? It was revealed to Simeon that he would not see death until he had seen the Lord's Messiah. That's the consolation of Israel. That's who Simeon by faith was looking for. He was waiting for this comforter. Thus, the consolation was the Messiah himself. You see, Simeon is not a self-made individual. His devoutness did not mean he needed Jesus less, but his devoutness means he was needing Jesus more. He couldn't wait for him to come. He knew that what he needed is who we all need on Christmas Day. A Savior who is Christ the Lord. We will take the bread this morning at the Lord's Supper And while it's a meager share of bread, the bread symbolizes that we all need something outside of ourselves to live. We need something for consolation and comfort. We need food to live. We need Christ to live forever. He is the bread of life. He is our only comfort in life and in death. Well, Christmas Day reminds us how deeply needy we are, how deeply unsatisfied we can be, that even the best gift won't satisfy forever and it certainly won't last forever. I remember when my first son was younger and we gave him this fire truck that I thought was cool. I don't know if I got it for me or for him. But soon he was frustrated No batteries, no batteries, no batteries. He was frustrated because it it no longer made the cool sounds, which by that point we were happy it made no cool sounds. But in a sense, God designed aspects of life for the batteries to run out so that you don't put all of your hopes here. The best gift won't satisfy. It won't last. It's designed in that way. And Christmas Day reminds us that we have a deep need. A deep need that's been divinely provided that Christ, the Savior, is born. That Christ is the consolation of Christmas. He's the consolation and comfort of our lives. And only when you see your need for a Savior and then you take him up into your arms as your only comfort in life and death, can you be called in any sense devout and righteous. Only Christ can comfort you. Only Christ can forgive you. Think of all the things we look for for satisfaction, even salvation. Do you think no personal testimonies this morning? But do you think that this morning people have had Christmas and could be quietly disappointed? That they didn't get exactly what they wanted. Friends, there's something worse than that. If you get what you want and you're still not satisfied, that is worse. There's a famous scene. The Academy Award winning film, Chariots of Fire. That movie about the Scottish runner, Eric Little, who wins a gold medal for for Britain. And he goes on to be a missionary and dies in an internment camp. He actually gives up his release to a pregnant woman and dies in the camp. Well, his teammate and nemesis is Harold Abrams. And like so many athletes, what made Abrams great was his drive to win at all costs. But as Abram prepares for a hundred yard dash in which he hopes to destroy his teammate and nemesis, uh, Eric, he faces a moment of uncomfortable existential crisis while he's changing for the race. While he's changing for the race, he muses, in one hour's time, I will be out on the track again. I will raise my eyes and look down that lane four feet wide with 10 lonely seconds to justify my existence. But will I? You see what Abrams is saying? What's worse than not getting what you want? It's getting what you want and you're still not satisfied. Simeon's life shows you that the only thing worth waiting for, the only consolation that will last, the only thing is Christ. Do you have the courage to admit that on Christmas Day? Do you have the courage on Christmas Day to admit, to deny yourself that you've been wrong? Even more, do you have the courage to admit that you're a sinner? Do you have the humility to admit that, that you need Christ? Simeon was a just and devout man waiting for the consolation of Israel. He was waiting for God's provision of Jesus Christ. And look what happens for this man. Read verses 27 and 30 or listen to it again with me. And he came in the spirit into the temple. And when his parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law he took him in his arms and he blessed God and said, no, I don't know. I'm reading this. I don't know. I mean, does he run up and he snatched him out of his arms? The Holy Spirit has revealed to him he wouldn't see death until he sees the child. And the moment this child comes in, it's like Simeon goes and says, excuse me, I, I need. Th- th-, and then gives a prophecy to which Joseph and Mary marvel. Well. Then He says you are now letting your servant depart in peace for my eyes have seen your salvation. Now, what a moment of mystery. He's cradling. He's cradling this baby boy in his arms. And as he draws him to his chest, maybe he hears and feels his heartbeat. And this baby Jesus, his chest rising and falling, this little boy Jesus who can't talk, but he can coo, who needs the milk of his mother's breast and protection of his father Joseph when the decree from Herod goes out. Simeon holds a cooing, wiggling, newborn baby boy in his arms. And yet as Simeon holds the boy, he was, in a sense, being held by the boy himself. As Simeon holds the boy, he exclaims, My eyes have seen your salvation, salvation for me for Israel, for the Gentiles. There are so many Christmas songs that capture the wonder, the marvel of this kind of moment for anybody who held the baby Jesus. Here was the promise of the ages beheld in time. God most high in a manger. Helpless he lay, the invincible, maker of Mary, now Mary's son. Yet as Simeon looked down into this baby's eyes, as he held this baby in his hands, He was holding the one who had the whole world in his hands. And one day those hands, those infant hands with tiny little infant fingerprints, those eternal hands that made the world would be nailed to the cross. He who had no crown or throne at his birth would reign from the cross with a crown of thorns at his death. This is Jesus who would save his people from their sins. This child is our salvation, exclaimed Simeon. And one day a sword will pierce the soul of his mother. As a spear pierces the side of her son. Jesus Christ, the baby on Christmas Day, is the Lamb of God on Good Friday, who died in the place of poor, ornery people like you and like me. That's what the bread reminds us of that our eyes, too, as we put on the spectacles of faith through the symbol of this bread, we behold our salvation. We behold our Savior. Some 400 years ago, anybody alive then? 400 years ago, a poet and dean of St. Paul's Cathedral in London rose and preached a sermon to his congregation in St. Paul's on Christmas Day. The poet and pastor wanted to show a connection between the birth of this baby and his saving death for sinners like you and me. His text that he chose for that Christmas morning Sunday were the words of Simeon. Let your servant now depart in peace, for my eyes have beheld your salvation. His name was John Dunn. John Dunn began his sermon in 1626 on Christmas morning Sunday with these words. And with these, this beginning of Dunn's sermon, I'm going to end my meditation on the bread. Here is how Dunn began his sermon on Christmas Sunday in St. Paul's. The whole life of Christ was a continual passion or suffering. Others die martyrs, but Christ was born a martyr. He found a Golgotha where he was crucified, even in Bethlehem where he was born. For to his tenderness then... The straws were almost as sharp as the thorns after and the manger as uneasy at first as his crown of thorns at the last. His birth and his death were but one continual act. His Christmas Day and his Good Friday are but the evening and morning of one and the same day. Behold, our eyes. Have seen his salvation. Do you
1: know Him? Maybe you woke up as early as I did today. I woke up as early as, well, a kid on Christmas. (laughs) I was excited about coming, and it wasn't just because my southern heat pump can't keep up with these northern temperatures. I woke up because we get to worship the Lord. And if my math is correct, and it likely is not. I was doing it on my fingers too, so... Uh, we don't get to celebrate another Christmas Sunday until 2034. So this is a unique and wonderful day to be together. But that may not be right. Someone can fact check that. Uh, but at Christmas, we focus on Jesus come to earth as a baby in the manger. And it's good that we think of him that way. For the incarnation is crucial to our theology of who Christ is. But today, we're inviting you to look at Christmas from a different perspective. It's already been said, but today we want you to see the child that was born to die. It's good for us to celebrate Emmanuel, the God with us. But Christ wasn't just sent to be with us, to empathize with our lowly estate, to commiserate with us. Jesus came to earth as a baby so he could live a sinless life and be a perfect sacrifice through his death on the cross. So Christmas is not the end. But the starting line of a race that goes from Christmas to Easter. Let us look at the birth of Christ in the book of Matthew. We've already read it today, but we're going to look at it again and see what it tells us about the Christ who was born to be our sacrifice. Matthew chapter one, verses 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth, and he called his name Jesus. If Simeon had been waiting for Christmas Day, Joseph didn't even know it was coming. (laughs) He was caught completely off guard by this. A little context here. Remember that the Old Testament ends with repeated promises of a promised Messiah to come, a Savior. But then it kind of goes dark. 400 years, and no one's heard from the Lord. There had been other times, I'm sure, years, maybe during the judges or the like, when they hadn't heard directly from God for a period of time. But this is a lot of time. And it probably would have been easy for men like Simeon and others to think, maybe God's forgotten us. Maybe he's given up on us. But after four years, that silence is broken with a word directly from heaven. The passage shows us and tells us much about Jesus, uh, Jesus, Joseph, and Mary. But look who the narrator of the story is, the angel of the Lord. So we have a Christmas Eve visitation by an angel. Maybe Joseph is the model character for Ebenezer Scrooge (laughs) and Dickens' Christmas Carol. But far from falling asleep and being visited by Jacob Marley and three ghosts, Joseph falls asleep and he's visited by an angel an angel of the Lord. And unlike Scrooge, Joseph isn't told to keep Christmas in your heart the other 364 days of the year, be good to all people and kind and nice. Joseph is told he's going to be the father of a child who's not his own. That's some Christmas gift. That's a difficult Christmas gift. We're told here that that Joseph, being a just man, didn't want to put Mary to shame. And here the angel tells him exactly what's going on. And there's so much in this, but let's look at two things. The angel tells us two crucial facts about who this child will be. First, it tells us that Jesus has a royal pedigree. Look at verse 20. The angel refers to Joseph as Joseph, son of David. In the first 17 verses of Matthew 1, We have Joseph's family tree. If you were with us for the Christmas concert, Brian sang that for us. Brian, can you do that now? No, we won't ask him to do it now. But the point of his song and the point of Matthew's inclusion of the genealogy is to show that Jesus through Joseph will be in the direct kingly line of David. Jesus is therefore born in the kingly line of succession. Now you might be saying, but Joseph wasn't his biological father. Can you think of another time in the New Testament when people who weren't children were made children of a king? It's something God delights in doing. But this is important that he's the son of David because it fulfills the Old Testament prophecy. In Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7, you can cue Handel in his Messiah here. This is a promise that the Messiah would be a son of David, would be a king in the line of David. But it says on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with righteousness and with justice from this time forth and forevermore. What kind of king can rule forever? In America, we have presidents. And at best or worst, depending on, Whether you like them or not, they last eight years. England recently lost her queen, but even she had a 70-year reign and no more. What kind of king could rule forever? Jesus himself will actually answer or ask this riddle in Matthew 22. He says, Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, What we've already said, the son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? Well, the angel here tells us in Matthew 1. Joseph is not Christ's biological father. The angel tells us that Jesus was from the Spirit of God, conceived by the Holy Spirit. Again, this is important because, again, this is in fulfillment of prophecy. And the prophecy is actually quoted here. Verse 23 quotes from Isaiah 7:14. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel or God with us. Then Jesus was not just royalty, he was divine. Jesus is not just a child of God. We refer to ourselves that way, don't we? We used to sing a song uh, when I was young. All God's people got a place in the choir. Some sing lower, some sing higher. Some <laughs> sing out loud on a telephone wire and some just clap their hands. <laughs> we like to refer to ourselves as child of God. But this is different than that. Because he was the very son of God. He was heir to the throne of David, yes, but he was also heir of heaven. So what does Joseph do after he wakes up from this Christmas Eve visitation? He doesn't send out for the prize turkey. Joseph takes Mary as his wife and he names the child Jesus as he was commanded, which means Yahweh saves or God is our salvation. Even from birth, we are to see Jesus as the promised Savior. The blood of Christ which flowed from his hands and his feet and his side was royal blood. And it was divine blood. In a minute, we'll take the cup and we'll celebrate his blood which was shed for us. But what makes this blood sufficient to save us from our sin is that the blood of the promised one is divine royal blood, the blood of the promised one of God, the only blood that could meet all of the requirements of the Old Testament sacrificial system. But even better than the blood of bulls or goats, it's once for all. We're told in Leviticus that the life of the flesh is in the blood. So on Christmas, of all days, we should remember the divine king who took on flesh like ours to be the sacrifice that we most desperately needed.